It is a joy and privilege to be here this morning. Good morning. All right. Um, I wish I had, uh, Warren, I wish I would brought some stuff on Steve. Uh, I didn't uh, think about that this morning when I left, but uh, I do have something. I'll, you know, I have his first sermon. He was about five years old, and uh, we were living in Glasgow, Kentucky, and we had a parsonage, and in the basement of the parsonage, it was an office. And he would come into my office and play in front of the desk, and I, could, I couldn't see him. He was in front of the desk. And I heard this, what sounded like a sermon. He was preaching. A service, an invitation, songs, everything. And um, uh, the title of his message, well, let me tell you what I did. I had a tape recorder on my desk. So I just reached over and clicked the recorder. And I got the whole thing on tape, believe it or not. And his sermon title was, Don't Slam the Door. <laughs> so from an early age, his mother wrote his sermon for him, you know. He got it straight from his mom. Uh, he, uh, I don't know whether he wanted you to hear that or not, but it was a pretty good sermon. Uh, I'd really like the part where he says, and if you do, your mama will whoop you. <laughs> you get a whooping. Well, it's, we, get, we get a kick out of it because he, he sounded just like, had that real strong Kentucky accent like I've got now. A lot more than, than he has now, but uh, when he went to, we went to Ecuador... And lived there. Of course, the kids lost all of their southern accent and picked up uh, this Midwestern accent. I don't know where they got that, but they got it from someplace. And uh, anyway, we get a kick out of it. I don't know whether you will or not, but maybe sometime next time down, I'll, uh, I'll share it with you. What I want to share with you today, and it's a privilege again to be here, and we'll get the slideshow going there in a second. Um, I want you to think about the business of the church. What is the business of the church, and how is business? Now, you might, don't, don't, don't lose me here at the beginning, because I want to connect this with what the Scripture teaches about what the church is supposed to be doing, what our goal, what our purpose is as the people of God. Um, but think with me for just a moment about that. Uh, Peter Drucker is a well-known business consultant and speaker, and uh, he asks a business, he says there are two questions at a business or a company needs to ask, first, what is your business? And then the second question, then, how's business? What is your business and how is business? Now for us, the business of the church, or the purpose of the church, if you want to put it that way, or the goal or the reason for the existence of the church is found in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Uh, that passage there is, um, has another, goes by another name. And if you, uh, some of you may be able to help me with this one. It goes by another name. Let's, let's look at, uh, it's called a certain kind of commission. Now I want you to help me here, kids. Fill in the blank there. What is this? Can anybody fill that blank in? The what? The Great Commission. That's right. The Great Commission. Now, when you think about great and the word great, you put the word great in front of a number of different things. And when you do, whether it's a, it's a location or whether it's something happened in history, it defines it, doesn't it? Can you think of some things that have to have great in front of it to understand what it means? What about the depression? The Great 
Depression. If you just said depression, you wouldn't think what I was talking about. But if you say the Great Depression, you know what I'm talking about, right? What about lakes? If I just said lake or lakes, you wouldn't know what I was talking about. But if I said Great Lakes, you identify it. All right, something else. Anything else? What else would have the word great in front of it? The Great Wall of China, right? Huh? Great Canyon? All right, I thought of a couple of others. The Great Plains. And, for me, the Great Smoky Mountains. But what does the word great really imply here? When you use the word great, you're talking about something unique, aren't you? You're talking about something that's one of a kind. Or you're talking about something that may be the very, very best. But when we talk about the Great Commission, we're talking about something that is the biggest, and for us, it's the most important thing we have. That's why we use the word Great Commission. So today, I want you to think with me about what is great about the Great Commission? Well, first of all, what is it? And there are several passages of Scripture we're going to be looking at today. But just looking at all of Scripture, all of the New Testament, we find that the Great Commission is several things. First of all, there's a task implied in the Great Commission, especially in Matthew 28, 19, 20. And we'll look at that in just a moment in detail. But it's the task of what? Making disciples. It's also, when you think about the Great Commissions, it's something that you do every day. It's an everyday responsibility because that verse in Matthew 28, 19, 20 says, really, as you go, make disciples. It's also something that is given to each and every believer. Not just a few of us, not just the pastors, not just the missionaries. It's given to every believer. Every follower of Christ is commanded to be a part of the Great Commission. And it's also a focus on making discipleship within each and every ethnic group. Because it says go to all the world or every nation. The word every nation is really the Greek word pantata ethne, which means every ethnic group. It's not just the nations as a geopolitical place like Ecuador or, or Indonesia or some country. It is the people groups around the world. And where do you find these? You find them around the world, but you also find them next door. Especially in a city like Atlanta, in this area where you have literally every ethnic group around the world living right here at our back door. Every ethnic group, it's each believer and each and every ethnic group. And where do you begin? From Acts 1-8, where does it begin? Begins in Jerusalem, right where I live. Right in my back door, right here where I'm at. And then finally, until we're to do it and share the Great Commission, until all have had the opportunity to hear in their heart language. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But these, this is basically what the Great Commission is. Making disciples, each and every believer making disciples each and every day as you go, with every ethnic group, every person as our target group, not just a few, not just people like us, and beginning right where we live and doing this until the Lord comes back until the end of the age. Now that pretty much sums up the Great Commission. But it really doesn't tell us 
what's so great about it. That's what I want us to think about today. There are basically four passages of Scripture. And I want, we're going to look at each one of these, but there are four basic passages of Scripture where we find the Great Commission. The first one is found in Matthew 28, 19, 20, as we just said. Let's look at it here on the screen. As it says, Jesus gave, came to them and said, All authority, and sometimes that's translated all power, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, what's so great about this Great Commission? What sticks out here? And probably, if you could have listened in, if that were possible, when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were talking about God's plan for the ages, we probably would have had a huge question here to say, this plan, God, do you really think it's the smartest plan? Because the plan God has here is who's doing this? Disciples making disciples. This is the plan. This is why it's so great. It's basically disciples making disciples. Jesus, when he called his fishermen to follow him, Peter and Andrew and James and John, when he called those fishermen, he said to them in Matthew 4.19, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. God's whole plan was to use the people who would come, who would come to be followers of Jesus to reach the entire world with the good news of Jesus Christ and reconcile this lost and rebellious world to himself through these fishermen to become fishers of men. That's God's plan. Well, when you think about making disciples, you have to ask the question then, what is a disciple? You ever thought about that? If our business is making disciples, you better know what a disciple is. If your business is making rubber stamps, you better know what a rubber stamp looks like. If your business is making cars, you better know what an automobile looks like. If your business is, or your purpose is to make disciples, what does a disciple look like? For me, there's one definition that I've kind of worked through myself and, and I think this pretty well sums up what the Scripture teaches is about someone who is a disciple of Christ. He is a fully devoted or committed follower of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, we're a disciple, a learner, a follower of Jesus. But more than that, according to Scripture, if we're to be fishermen of men, we are consistently and faithfully making disciples. And we make disciples, and we'll see in just a moment, through the proclaiming of this good news and the living out of this gospel of Jesus Christ. That, for me, is what a disciple is. And we make disciples who are then making disciples. That makes sense? Well, I found another definition in a book by Greg Ogden that I want to share with you a little bit later, that whole, the title of that book. But Greg Ogden said that for him... 
a disciple is one who is a self-initiating, reproducing, and fully devoted follower of Christ. And I think that's true. A self-initiating, which means a self-motivated. I, I think we misunderstand self-motivation. It's not that we motivate ourselves, but the Holy Spirit living within us. God taking up abode within our heart through the presence of the Holy Spirit gives us that self-motivation. And a follower of Christ is not someone you have to browbeat and beg and conjole to do the things you want them to do. They have something inside them that is leading them to follow Christ. And that is the Holy Spirit. So in that sense it is self-initiating, reproducing. That is you're making other disciples as you follow, devotedly, committedly follow Jesus Christ. I like those. I like those. And you, you may have a little different definition of that. But we better know what it is we're trying to make if we're going to do what Christ has given us the command to do. Now, here's the question for us. A little bit different from the way uh, Peter Drucker said. He said, what's your business and how's business? So for the church, for us, if making disciples is what we're all about, then the question is, how's business? How are we doing? Are we making disciples? That's a question I ask every church planter who begins a church in our association. We've started 36 churches in the last seven, eight years. And every one of them, I ask them the question, how are you going to make disciples? And if they give me some kind of an answer like, well, I'm going to have a Sunday school class for new members. I said, you haven't answered my question. You've told me you're going to have a Sunday school class for new members. But that doesn't make disciples necessarily. What's your process? What's your idea? What, how, do you're going, how is your church going to make disciples? How is business for us? How are we going to make disciples? God has a plan. And that plan is to use us. As we go through these other, three other things that make the Great Commission great... I think you'll begin to grasp a little bit more about how we can get serious about making disciples. I hope we do. Because it is, it is the single most important or most serious deficit facing the church today. Is our deficit of disciples and disciple making. It is the most serious thing we face. So what about it? What makes the Great Commission great? One other thing. Well, actually, there are three more. The next one is found in Luke's gospel. And Luke's version, or excuse me, Mark. Mark's version of the Great Commission is not one that we Baptists use very much. Because as we read it here, look with me what it says. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And they will drink deadly poison. And it will not hurt them at all. And they will place their hands on the sick people and they will get well. Now, we Baptists don't read that one very often because we don't like to pick up snakes. And, and you know, speaking in tongues, that's for another denomination, you know. But this is what it says. And I think what we gather here from this passage of Scripture is that what makes the Great Commission so great is that we see here the passion of God and the passion we must have if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission. Because I don't want to pick up a snake, do you? 
I don't want to handle, I don't want to drink poison. But what, there's, what Mark is saying is this. Regardless of the obstacles that are there, snakes, poison, persecution, whatever it might be, they will face it. And they will overcome it. My people will overcome. But the passion we have to have must look beyond those obstacles, beyond those persecutions, beyond the things that give us trouble, beyond the things that are out there to stop us from doing the Great Commission. Why? Because there's a huge compassion in our heart for what God has a compassion for. Let me say it like this. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 1 John 4, 10 through 12. That's the driving force behind the Great Commission. It isn't that we're afraid of God and afraid of what he might do to us if we don't fulfill the Great Commission. But what drives us is the same thing that led God to let his son, his only begotten son, leave heaven in all of its glory, come to the gruesome, horrible place of earth and be hung on a cross, spit upon, degraded, laughed at and crucified because God so loved us. And if he so loved us, we should have the same love for each other and for a lost and a dying world. And so here's a question I want you to ask yourself. I ask myself this question literally every day. Am I passionate about what breaks the heart of God? And what is it? What is it that breaks his heart? A lost and a dying world. That lost and dying world may be my neighbor. Maybe the person doesn't speak my language but lives on the same block that I live on. Maybe the person who dresses different from the way we dress here in the United States. But they live and they go to Walmart and they go to the stores that we go to. God loves those people. He sent his son to die on a cross to give them that opportunity to hear the gospel, a lost and a dying world. And so if that's true, what am I doing about it? Do I have the passion? That's what's great about the Great Commission. It's not that it's, it's, it's that great a plan. It is a great plan. But it's a great passion of God for us to reach a lost and a dying world. Let me, let, me, let me just, I don't have it on the slide here, but let me share with you a quote that I got from, a, from actually from this book, Transforming Discipleship by Greg Ogden, that I mentioned, Greg, a minute ago, the quote I had on what, what it means to be a disciple. Greg quotes George Barna. George Barna had done uh, hundreds of surveys a few years back, surveying believers, born-again people, people who say they were faithful and committed to the church and went to church every week. And George Barna said, after interviewing hundreds of people, leaders in the churches, this was a quote from him. Not one of the adults we interviewed, listen to this, not one of the adults we interviewed 
said that their goal in life was to be a committed follower of Jesus or to make disciples of the entire world or even the entire block. That is astounding. That blows my mind. Is it possible our priorities are messed up? Because you see, if our priorities are messed up, we can get caught up on the little things and the mundane things. So our greatest fear as a church is not that we should fear failure, but our greatest fear should be that we succeed in things that really don't matter. And there are some things that really don't matter eternity for eternity. But there's one thing that does matter. And that is the destiny of eternal souls. Where they will spend their eternity. So if making disciples, I come back to this question, is our business, then I ask the question, how's business? Well, let's move on to a, the third thing that I think makes the Great Commission so awesome and so great. And that is found in these next two passages of Scripture. Actually, Luke Acts has another version, if you want to call it that, of the Great Commission. It's actually stretched over several chapters. It begins in Luke chapter 24. It continues in Acts chapter 1 because Luke is the author, as you know, of both of those, those books. It was written as one, one large scroll and it was divided many, many years later into two different books. But it was originally, originally written as one. Luke, Acts. It begins in Luke chapter 24 with these words. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised. But you stay in Jerusalem, in the, in the city, until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now let's go on to the next uh, verse in, in Acts chapter 1. They did what Jesus said, and they were to stay there. And these are the words he said to them. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now in these two passages, there's one word that comes up at least twice. And it's the word power. In the Greek, it's the word dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. But it doesn't mean explosive power like we think of dynamite. It's actually metamorphic power. It's power to transform. It's power to change. A changing power. It's the power of God. And this is what's so great about the Great Commission. It is God's power unleashed in our world today. A few years back, our association was struggling. Of our 130 churches in Guilford County in the central part of North Carolina... We were struggling with a good vision for our association. Something would be catchy. And I came up with this really cool vision that I thought was great. It, uh, a vision of having vibrant and healthy churches. And a couple of our young pl church planners said, so what? <laughs> vibrant, healthy churches. What does that mean? I got to explain that thing. Don't you know what a healthy church is? A vibrant church? Basically, we came down to it. We only exist... To see our world transformed by the power of Christ. People transformed by his 
power and presence in their lives. And so we changed our, our vision. Our vision is to see radical transformation in our community. And if that isn't happening, we aren't the church. We aren't doing what God's called us to do. We're not just meeting in buildings and having a good time together. We're here to be salt. We're here to be leaven, to reach a lost and a dying world. And this is what it's all about, going and being his witnesses. But don't do it until you have the power of God upon you. It is the power of God that makes this great commission so great. Jesus said something remarkable in John's gospel. Actually, it's, it's there three or four times. But in John 6, 44, he very clearly states, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, what do you think that means? That's a little tough one, isn't it? No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. Well, I think he goes on to explain it. In John 12, when they came and said there were some Greeks who wanted to see you, Lord, and um, instead of pulling out his daytimer and saying, well, tomorrow about 4 o'clock they can come and see me, Jesus gets, goes into this, this speech about how a grain of wheat must fall to the ground and the hour of the Son of Man has come. He's going to be lifted up. And the whole purpose was, if I am lifted up, John 12, 32, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. You see, he knew he was going to be lifted up. And there's something about the death of Christ that when he's lifted up, he will draw people to him. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And let's look at one more. John, 18, John 16, 8 through 11. Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit, preparing his disciples for when he was going to leave and leave his disciples alone to go out in the world and fulfill this great commission. He said to them, and he said, when he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, he, earlier he said, it's necessary that I go, because if I don't go, he won't come. But the Holy Spirit will come, and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. This is a powerful statement. The Holy Spirit's presence is to convince and convict. But we have a great commission to go and make disciples. And if we forget where our source of power comes from, we may be tempted to take all the credit ourselves. Oh, we witnessed to 20 people today. I saw 15 people get saved. I led so many or such and such to Christ. We must remember, He does it, not us. He is the great soul winner. The Holy Spirit. Yes, He uses us. He uses our testimonies. He uses our witnessing. He uses our, our tracts that we hand out. He uses everything that happens. But it is the Holy Spirit who convicts and convinces and leads the world, leads the lost to come to know Him and guides and leads us in following Him. It is the Holy Spirit and without Him, we are powerless. Without Him, we would be nothing. Now, one more source of that power we must remember. It's not just the Holy Spirit, although it is, but the Holy Spirit uses the message of the gospel. Listen to what 
Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, what does it say? Say it with me. It is the power of God. You remember also Romans 1.16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God and the salvation. We've got the great power of God in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We've got this amazing message of the gospel. We can't explain it. I cannot explain to you how the gospel and the Holy Spirit work in a person's life to transform that life. But guess what? It happens. And it will. And the glorious greatness of the Great Commission is that this is about the power of God. And not the power of the church. And not the power of the preacher. Not the eloquence of those who are doing the witnessing. But the ever-present power of the Spirit of God. Now what else could there be that makes this so great? Power. God's great passion. His great plan. There's one more. That last verse in those five that I showed you. That are the great commission verses. The last one is John's. Let me go through that. And the last one is found there in John chapter 21. John 20, excuse me. Verse 21. John 20, 21. This is the shortest of all the great commission verses. But look what it says. Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Again, you get kind of confused if you read that and wonder, where? you mean I have the power to forgive sins? No, not exactly. But listen to this. God is in partnership with us. And that's what this is all about. It's about a partnership. This makes the Great Commission really great. God is in partnership with us. He's working through us, human vessels, instruments that are fallible and make mistakes and do all kinds of dumb things and have to get forgiven for our, our sins. And have to confess our sins every once in a while and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I goofed up. I messed up. I'm human. God, forgive me. God says he's going to use us in all of our frailty as his partners. Isn't that amazing? I don't know about you. I get blown away by that partnership. I am so humbled. As Henry Blackaby said, God is at work all around us. And he's inviting us all the time to join him in what he's doing. You know why that is? In, first, in 2 Corinthians 5.18, it says there that all of this is from God. He had just said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away and behold, all things are new. Then verse 18 says this. All of these things are of God. Everything here is of God. He reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then he gave us a ministry. Now that's not just the apostles. It's not just the preachers. It's not just the missionary. He gave us, all of you, you and I, the ministry of what? Reconciliation. Now what does that mean? He actually explains it here. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them, and has committed to us the message of reconciliation. This is what it's all about. 
God in Christ, bringing the world to himself. And guess what? He said, now I'm giving you this message, and I want you to go. I want you to share it with the world. That's why Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians later on, says in 2 Corinthians 6, 1, that's why he said this. As God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. But look at that first phrase. We are God's partners. And then later, uh, or in, in the fifth chapter, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you in all my prayers for you, and always praying with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now forgive me, that, that reference is wrong. <laughs> okay, that's not the right reference there. But that is the right verse. It's actually in Philippians. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you in all of my prayers for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word is koinonia, fellowship. But our churches build fellowship halls. Do you all have a fellowship hall? You don't call it that, do you? A lot of churches, when I grew up, built fellowship halls. You know, there was, uh, you may have heard this. There was, there was three little boys that were in kindergarten. It was a Baptist, a little Jewish boy, and a Catholic boy. And the teacher said, I want you to bring something representing your religion, your faith. And the little Catholic boy brought a rosary. The little Jewish boy brought a menorah. And the little Baptist kid brought a casserole dish. Because Baptists are known for eating. We're known for having our fellowship halls. And there's nothing wrong with that. We need to eat. We need to have fellowship. And those are great times together. But that's not what the word means in the Greek. The word here means partnership. Koinonia. Fellow partakers is really the word. Working together. Do you take serious the fact that God calls you his partner? Have you even thought about it? How awesome is it that God says you are his partner? I am his partner in this? And so we ask the question again. If making disciples is our business, then really, how is business? Is it because we haven't understood the power of God at work? We haven't really stepped into that partnership role? We haven't understood and grasp and embrace God's great passion for a lost and a dying world and we really don't see it as part of God's plan I, I'm, that's really not who I am what I'm here to do how is business the great commission making disciples don't forget this requires these four things God's plan that is it's disciples making disciples it is God's passion for a world a lost world dying without without Christ and without hope it is God's power drawing the lost world to himself. And it is partnership, God's partnership, that he has partnered with us. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Two questions to take home with you today. Who are you discipling? Because you see, discipleship isn't done in a classroom. You can teach discipleship. And really, I guess really the problem is we've taken making disciples and turned it into a noun rather than a verb. Are you get what I'm saying? A noun, like discipleship, can be defined and described and taught as a subject in a classroom. Making disciples only happens in relationships. Who has God placed in your life 
with whom you have relationships, your circle of influence, who's out there? And the question is, are you making disciples in your Jerusalem? But another question similar to that is, who is discipling you? A friend of mine who works with Gallup organization, well, used to, is now doing a ministry called Equipping for Equippers, uh, Joe Cavanaugh. Joe does a lot of conferences with pastors in the Midwest, up in uh, Iowa and Nebraska area. And Joe told me recently, said in one conference of 100 pastors, he got to talking about discipleship. And pastors came up afterwards, these are pastors now, with tears in their eyes and said, if that's discipleship, I have never been discipled. I think they have been discipled, but it wasn't intentionally. Intentional discipleship is when I invest in someone else's life and I take time to speak into that life, to speak truth, to speak truth into the lives of people around me, not just to convince them that I'm, what I'm thinking is right, but to speak truth when they need someone to talk to, to be there when they're hurting and to be there to help them grow in their faith and in their walk with God. It isn't just having a certain number of people that I've led to Christ, but a certain number of people that I am leading in a walk with God and becoming a fully devoted, committed follower of Jesus. And then I go back to this book by Greg Ogden that I mentioned earlier. And I would encourage you, I'm going to give you another resource in just a moment that you can take home with your, you can ask Steve about. I don't have enough copies to get everybody one, but... He's got some, I think, here. It's about investing in people's lives. And I think discipleship, I agree with Greg Ogden, who said, my conviction is that the way, primary way, people grow into becoming disciples, if you want to call it self-initiating, reproducing, fully devoted followers of Christ, is by being involved in a highly accountable and highly relational, multiplying discipleship unit of three or four. In my 40 plus years in the ministry, I'm convinced that is the best way to make disciples. Investing in people's lives. And I saw in on Steve's desk, and I think I got a copy of it right here, Life Transformation Groups by Neil Cole. It's real simple. No doctrine here at all. Just get the Bible, study God's Word together with three or four men or three or four women together and meet on a regular basis and look each other eyeball to eyeball across a table at Starbucks or wherever and ask those tough questions. How's it going this week? What are you looking at on the, on the internet? How's it going in your, with your temper? How's it going with your, in, in your home? How's it going? Those tough questions that are discipleship questions, accountability questions, one with another. I ask pastors every week, almost every week, I guess, I ask a pastor, in my association, who do you have that you meet with on a weekly or regular basis who will ask you the tough questions about your schedule, about your family, about your prayer life? Who is keeping you accountable? Uh, 1,500 pastors leave the ministry every month. Did you know that? Because they burn out or have moral failures. 95% of these will say, when interviewed, 
I do not have a close personal friend. You cannot, you cannot be successful in ministry and in service if you're a lone ranger and no one is helping you to stay accountable. I urge you, I, I beg you, find a group of people, three or four, and people that you can love and they can love on you and you can be accountable and become disciples. And so, as you go from here today, as you go about what you do this week, remember, this is the business of the church, making disciples. We love to meet, we love to sing, we love to eat, we love to do a lot of great things. But if we're not making disciples, I'm afraid business is not so good for the church. So as you go, make disciples. Of who? All people, wherever you meet them. Begin in your Jerusalem, where God has placed you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to be here and to share your word. Lord, as we come to this time of commitment, this time of reflection, this time of decision in our own hearts, this response to your word, Father, I pray that you would guide each one of us as we wrestle with that question in our own hearts. Who am I discipling? And who is discipling me? And am I part of this great commission? And will I accept it? Will I embrace it today? Father, we come to you. We simply leave the rest of the service in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.